We speak with Danny Ryan, former Chair of Field and Gain Australia, about the role that shooting organisations can play in facing our political challenges. Welcome to the Politics Related Podcast. It's a podcast for Australian shooters who just want the political interference taken out of shooting. So Danny Ryan uh, is with me. You're the former chair of Field and Game Australia. Correct. Yes, I mean, uh, so we had a board election process last week and I wasn't re-elected. So uh, even though I polled a, a large number of uh, first preference votes, I, I didn't uh, make the cut at the NCS. So just recently stepped off the board of Field and Game. Okay. And when did you join the board? Uh, so I joined the board three years ago, uh, uh, 2020, and um, so I've just finished my three-year term up. You, um, the word you used when we spoke the other day was that you've now been unleashed. Unleashed and unencumbered, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Danny, just give us a bit of a rundown. You, um, you run your own firearms business. You know, you're in the trade. Correct, yes, I do. So I, I run uh, Rhino Sport, uh, which is my... Um, which is my firearms business. I'm a firearms dealer in Victoria. I do a lot of import from overseas. I've got some uh, exclusive lines that I distribute in Australia, um, uh, mainly in the uh, ELI rifle world and PRS world. That's we do build a lot of high-end centerfire custom rifles and things like that. We also do um, Voodoo Gunworks, really high-end um, rimfire rifles, both in bench rest and repeaters, um, so we're right into that market. Also do a lot with high-end competition shotguns, um, and I, I did for a number of years import a line of shotgun cartridges from Italy, so I think I did that for about 10 years, um, and then I've now switched over and just concentrating more on, on firearms. Okay. So your interest in, I guess, supporting your sport uh, has been more than just helping to run field and game and, and, and deal with the the events that, that it, it caters for. You've been very active uh, politically um, in supporting shooters and shooting. Can you just give us a bit of a rundown of sort of where you, sort of where your, your entry point into that was and sort of what your journey was like? Yeah, well, really it goes back to uh, my uh, political interest in firearms and firearm ownership and all of the things that, that go along with that basically goes back to the the very beginning of um, my field and game journey back when I was just uh, a young lad of um, five or six years old where both my parents were heavily involved in my local field and game branch and then they became involved at state level. Um, my mother was the state treasurer and my dad was on the state executive body for a number of years and uh, and then I basically grew up at field and game branches and, you know, and I've been privy to the fight and the struggle that um, firearm owners and hunters have had for a long period of time and then I got into um, the business world and things like that and and then obviously in 96 um, I was uh, very engaged even though I was only a young fella uh, was was very engaged in the fight and for, to retain um, firearms in the Howard years obviously and it, my, my interest in and um, engagement has always been from from that that point really heavily and and obviously in the last um in the last little while i've uh, been fortunate enough to run my own business and having time to devote to 
certain aspects of things in, in regards to those things, whether it be my local field and game branch, whether it be um, on the board of Field and Game Australia or whether it be with, you know, different people from different groups or different different things um, has allowed me a certain level of interaction that perhaps you know, other people don't have. But, but, but it's been there for a long time. I, I've been the branch delegate from my branch to Field and Game since the early 2000s. Um, I was a sponsor of Field and Game for a number of years at the national level. And so my, always, my interest has always been there and you know, we've always kept on, in touch with both what the organisation and, and obviously very keen watcher of what other organisations and um, people do at the same time. Sure. Um, so I think the problems facing shooters of Federal War 9, I think most shooters actually understand quite clearly that you know we've got a political problem um probably don't know what the solution is how did we get there what did we do or not do over the last 20 or 30 years that perhaps um has led to where we're at in terms of being on the nose with you know a, a lot of politicians and also not really being flavor of the month with even even within government what what, what went wrong i think we've uh Shooters and hunting organisations have, uh, and shooting organisations have failed uh, to maintain a connection with politicians and, in particular, staffers. And I think we've failed at some very basic levels of understanding how politics works. Um, if you go back to the fifties, the sixties, we're talking, you know, 10, 15 years post-World War II, there was still a lot, uh, you know, Australia was still basically a ruralised population, not so much heavily influenced by urban populations. People still had a connection to uh, harvesting their own food, hunting, firearm ownership, use of firearms. And if they didn't own firearms themselves, they, they knew someone who did. Uh, but then through the late 60s, the 70s, and you know, obviously into the 80s, we've become a more urbanised population. We've lost that connection. And I think that's then followed down the line with um, politicians and politicians' understanding of firearms and firearm ownership as well. Um, I think there, there's always been a, an element within society that have a dislike of firearms and perhaps... Um, don't trust people with firearms because firearm gives you uh, a, 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 people are scared of the power of a firearm. Whether that's been you know, just a firearm sitting by itself, they just don't have that concept and understanding of of, of firearms, and it's something that they're naturally or that they're afraid of. Um, and I think that then reflects through to politics as well. Hmm. And we see constant references in this country to. You know, the United States of America being heavily armed and you know, there's a lot of people making quotes all the time about you know, homicide rates and murder rates in the US and comparing that to Australia and things like that. So, Yeah. I mean, there's three things there that come to my mind. One is is you talk about some of the, the politicians of days gone by. I mean, I made mention in another episode of this podcast series that, you know, we've, we've had prime ministers, state premiers, governor generals who've been patrons of shooting organisations. Um, Field and Game is one of them. I think Malcolm Fraser was, Sir Henry Boldy might have been. Um, also some of the famous names in the entertainment world um, still uh, internationally uh, are quite well associated with, with shooting. We've got Susie Quattro, uh, Jackie Stewart. Um, you know, there's a few around who, Barry Gibb, I think, was one, another one who um, 
you know, haven't shirked from being being seen as a shooter, um, whereas that's very much not how things are in Australia at the moment, which is very sad to see. The mentions of the United States are also interesting because the US is a very different country. I mean, it looks a lot like Australia in, in some ways, but they, they do with freedoms in ways that we just don't do that culturally here. I mean, you still ride a motor's bike without a helmet. You know, you still got access to firecrackers. You can buy beer in, in chemists. I mean, it's a very different um, sense of, of, of what our freedoms are. So when people talk about gun laws uh, and how it compares with the US, it's not just about that. It's actually a much, it's a, I think it's a bigger and broader discussion that people are actually having about the US, but they're, but they are honing in on, on the firearms, which is, which is obviously reflects on us unfairly. Yes, you're right. Uh, uh, and having spent a lot of time in America, America is more about the um, personal responsibility of the individual, whereas Australia, we have a, a different sense of how that's managed, I guess, in, 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 for want of a better terms. We've, we've grown up, I think, in Australia, uh, yeah, particularly being heavily influenced by um, the old DART, the United Kingdom, and we have a completely different mentality in terms of um, how we as a society respond to our government um, and the two different forms of government are entirely different as well. If you look at the US political system versus the United Kingdom Westminster mm -hmm. system, um, there's, there's some massive differences between the two. Yeah, freedom, freedom comes at a cost and sometimes that cost can be personal danger, but that's the trade-off you've got to make. Okay, so coming back to I guess the political environment that we're in, um, you've been quite active in recent months and years in terms of, uh, I guess, lobbying the state government on duck season, uh, et cetera. Would you want to just recap sort of the work you did and what, what you, how you see the lay of the land going forward? Yeah, by all means. So Fielding Home Australia has always been very active in the political scene um, with, with advocacy trying to build and maintain relationships, trying to understand how some of the political decision-making processes occur. Uh, we have always had uh, contact with major players in, in, in all sides of politics, with the exception of the Greens and, and um, obviously now the Emerging Animal Justice Party. But we've always had good relationships with Labor, Libs and Nats and at times it fluctuates, it goes up and down and, and um, some people are more responsive to some issues than others. Uh, but we've always um, been very tried to run very middle of the road politically uh, and just make sure that we represent our members and our members' interests. We, uh, for many years, have run a very successful um, poly shoot, which is where we invite a number of politicians from all persuasions to come along and experience some play target shooting activity, eat some game meat meals and things like that and just try to give us the opportunity to build relationships and let politicians um, see and experience what it is to pick up a shotgun and shoot a few clay targets or I know other other organisations have done much the same thing. I know uh, WSWA Vic does something similar where they have a range day and invite politicians along. And those, those things are very important. Um, but at the same time, there, there should be probably a little bit more focus in some other areas. And, and th those things are great um, to help you build relationships, 
but then you've got to continue to nurture those relationships as you go along. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, their core responsibility will be to their party. And uh, whilst I think it's very helpful to have them there, I mean, they do learn quite a bit about what you do. Um, at the end of the day, they're going to be beholden to, you know, that, that fuzzy world of politics, um, which, I mean, do do you think that the shooting organisations, I mean, do we understand it? Do we, are we working with it? Are we getting are we getting anywhere with it? That's a great question because uh, the I think the answer to that is you need to have uh, enough reach and enough relationship with political parties and political identities that then that gets forwarded to to the policy decision making process uh, for a number of years. And I'll use uh, for example the Libs and the Nats in Victoria um, have always had a strong supportive policy for hunting or sorry a policy a position not not necessarily a policy and we've seen the same in new south wales and and things like that so uh, a position is not necessarily policy and sometimes that doesn't cross over and when the when uh there's well i think there's just more work to be done in those areas uh, it's the same when we have dealt with uh Labor ministers in the hunting arena and, and keep in mind that there was up to three of them in the recent past um, and you know, Labor had a very simple supportive um, position that they they supported safe, sustainable and responsible hunting and um, that that is like pretty much their, their standard position on most things when it comes to hunting. It, it's probably very similar when they talk about firearms ownership as well but the the challenge for shooting hunting organizations is to make sure they build that relation strong enough so that when there is any uh major you know regulatory or or legislative decisions to be made is that they're in the that's very important to be involved in the consultative process um because if you're not and you don't have a chair at the table then you can't represent your members and you can't be heard that that's the biggest key area and that that's an area where also we should continue to lobby to make sure that we do get that opportunity and that government recognizes that it needs to consult the the general end user group as well yeah just um point there you talk about position versus policy and i think like the way that i tend to look at it is it position really is a defensive um uh sort of statement so that it might not mean you're actually going to do anything proactively for the constituency that you have a position for, but you are, it's basically a baseline, whereas policy tends to be more proactive, where we say this is, you know, we're going to actually implement something and do something which might require laws or regulations or investment of some sort. Um, that's how, how I tend to read the difference between the two. I mean, others may have different views on that. Correct, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, the the difference between the two things is is quite marked and uh yes so it's it's an interesting part to um try and play around in that world of politics definitely the different positions between those two things yeah so okay we there are things that shooting organizations can do and that's uh and that's great they can better engage with political um, processes but at the end of the day the sharp end of the business really is i think I mean, the, the currency that politicians trade in is votes. And at the end of the day, there are times I think that, I mean, I'd like to think that shoes have to actually 
do the, the hard work, which is basically go after politicians and support and support the good ones. And that costs money, costs time, and it can also cost reputation, which can be difficult for some of the shooting organisations that partially rely on government for what they do. Uh Absolutely. Now, um, you hit, you've hit on a couple of really pertinent key points because there's things that individuals don't understand about politics and there's things that organisations don't necessarily understand about politics. And then there's we see peaks and troughs of effort depending upon where the pressure comes. So um, you're right, politicians have uh, a, a primary interest in being re-elected first and foremost and then obviously managing the state or the country, um, federal or state, um, and to influence and, and, and they run that and do that along party lines most of the time. So the difference is to try and make politicians understand and uh, listen to your side of the argument and to get engagement from members is critical for organisations. So there's a, there's a couple of really murky points in amongst how we try and manage that as a shooting organisation or as an individual person. So politicians always respond at, at, at first at a local level. So um, the individual shouldn't underestimate, so an individual shooter or hunter shouldn't underestimate just how important their local contact is with their local politician. Um, we see time and time again the same criticism comes back and the same feedback comes back that we have um, or big organisations that are well-managed, well-funded, but we don't see the cut-through in members at grassroots level going into their local politician's office and banging on the door or making an appointment and, and doing it in a polite and well-informed manner to mm. let their local politician know that, you know, I am a hunter or I am a firearm owner. Um, and this is how I want you to represent me. That's probably the most important message, number one. Number two, the major play that all the shooting and hunting groups need to get themselves sorted around is working collaboratively together. I'm not saying they all have to have the same policies and we don't all have to be seeking the same outcome, but we need to start to work collaboratively together to understand the politics and understand where some of the things are. So... Just recently, I spent a fair bit of time doing some work with um, Peter Hunt from the Weekly Times, and we looked and pulled apart a lot of marginal electorates. This is very, very specific to duck hunting in particular. Now, we found there was six ALP-held seats that were so marginal that the total number of game licences in that electorate would have turned that seat either way. Now... Yeah. It's not too much of a jump to expand that when you start looking at, say, you know, 1,500 game licences in that area. Then you add um, close contacts within a family. All of a sudden, that 1,500 becomes uh, 3,000, becomes 4,500. And 4,500 votes as a percentage in some electorates is quite large. So we can, yeah, I think shooters underestimate their power and, and, individ and the brand and, and organisations probably underestimate how to activate their members to try and get that message across as well. Uh, so so organisations-wise as well, I think we all need to work together and we need to start pulling some of these numbers out. And as much as I would dislike to see us start to play real gun-to-the-head politics, I think if we produce well-informed well arguments, factual information, and we hit on 
um, key interest points, I think that's really the way forward with it, with our politicians and to get them to understand um, where we're at and what we do. Um, the other major issue with um, shooters, hunters, organisations is that we see um, constant division as well. So that, that's one of the other key key issues and problems. So you know, when duck and quail hunting is under threat, the deer hunters just sort of go out. It's okay. It's yeah. You know, it's the old story. You know that that doesn't really affect me, so I'll be fine. And then once duck and quail hunting's gone, then they go after deer, and then the the um, and I'm not having a real crack at like any particular individual group, but then you know the, the target shooting guys will go, oh well, I only go target shooting, and you know duck and quail hunting didn't affect me, and deer hunting, if we lose deer hunting, that doesn't affect me either because I'll still be able to go out and shoot a few rabbits and foxes if I want to do that. Then when that goes, then when rabbits and foxes go and you're not allowed to do any pest control because the Animal Justice Party has said, well, we don't want anything shot in the whole country and then they get some politicians to come on board with that as well and all of a sudden everything's getting killed with 1080, then all of a sudden your target shooting guys go, oh, well, none of that still really affected me. But then the government turns around and says, well, now we've got all of these people that don't need to own firearms because you're not allowed to go duck and quail hunting, you're not allowed to go deer hunting. There's no more pest control activities being undertaken. So then, therefore, um, 80% of the population that currently owns firearms no longer needs to own firearms. Yeah, and the, that's, um, that, that's a far reach and it's probably it's a really big jump. But, but essentially, that, is, that, that, that process is in the minds of some of our politicians. It's what could happen if we all stood to one side and never lifted a finger. Correct. It follows that, that, that path. But I think because it hasn't happened, it's probably partially due to um, the efforts of a number of people over a number of years in different ways, even, including even within some of the, the minor political parties that have, that have been created. I mean, there's some few, a few names that you could float from the 80s or 90s, I think, around that, that were probably, I think, smarter operators, to be perfectly blunt, than what, perhaps what we've got now. Um, but... Equally, I think, um, yeah, that the diversity of shooting is a strength and a weakness. Um, it's a strength in that um, it's, it's such a big activity, hunting, target shooting, gun collecting, pistol, rifle, shotgun. There's a lot, a lot of permutations there. Um, but it's a weakness in that it's, you, you never, there's no natural central point for it. Yep. So, so the, the, strength in, the strength in the diversity is that we have a, a, a number of different organisations. Now, everyone's got to be singing off a similar sheet of music. They don't have to sing the same tune, but everyone has to have the same um, long-distance outcome. Um, and I, I'm actually a real fan of, uh, of, of multiple organisations um, making multiple demands upon politicians or, or putting forward multiple arguments because... This is one of the things that that um, has happened to duck hunting, and I'll use duck hunting as the example in the last fifteen years in Victoria. So, and, mo and most people will have a recognition of the fact that Laurie Levy has been running his anti duck hunting anti duck hunting campaign in Victoria since about 1985-86. He started, and Laurie was the only one that did it for about thirty years, and then. All of the sudden, there was a bit of division and a bit of branch off, and all of a sudden, you had 
you had so you had coalition against duck shooting as the primary one. Then you had ballerine against duck shooting, regional Victorians opposed to duck shooting. Then Animals Australia jumped in. Then you've got Wildlife Victoria taking an interest. Then you had RSPCA. So now instead of having one or two key animal activist organisations opposing duck and quail hunting, we now have seven or eight. And when they go and represent to government, the yeah. politician who's sitting in their office sees someone come in as a member of regional Victorians opposed to duck shooting. Then the next person comes in as coalition against duck shooting. The next one comes in as ballerine against duck shooting. Next one comes in as Animals Australia and RSPCA and so on and so forth. And then in that politician's mind, I think that they see this massive quantity of people in their community or their electorate, more importantly, that is anti-hunting. And, of course, those anti-hunting groups all have the same end goal in mind, which is to influence government to ban duck hunting or ban duck and quail hunting. So, um, you know, they will make up, you know, they utilise their polls and they claim that, you know, 87% of Victorians want duck hunting banned, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and politicians yeah. don't fact check that stuff and they certainly don't fact check it when they've got seven or eight different organisations pinging away at them with the same info. And that's what we need to do as hunting organisations is we need to all share information with each other, uh, pull apart science, pull apart um, people's opinion, um, counter-argue against the arguments that, you know, the, the Ray Morgan poll, 87% of Victorians said, you know, they support a ban on duck hunting. We've got to go and pull that apart. And when you pull that apart, you find that they made, you know, 527 phone calls or whatever it was, and 490 of those phone calls were made in certain electrics in certain inner city bands where they know there's a high proportion of people that are that are that are urbanized um, and don't go out into the country and don't understand the topic yeah Num numbers are everything in this game uh, and politicians count the numbers um they'll they'll yes they'll hear from these groups but they'll also make their own assessment as to whether these groups actually have any substance to them and whether they can actually shift votes and if they can't shift votes and they don't matter so, um, so I, I'm, I, I tend to think I tend to think that in a way it's possible that the fact that our opponents haven't actually got themselves organized might be sort of why we haven't really yet have had a sustained attack you're right so so the division yeah the division that's grown out of you know the extreme left of labor which morphed into the greens you know, probably some of the Democrats in the early days as well yeah and now we've got you know, the Animal Justice Party, Last the last Victorian state election, we saw the Animal Justice Party really start to hit their straps. They run candidates or ran candidates in every lower house seat. They ran candidates in every upper house seat and they did an amazing preference deal for Georgie Purcell and they managed to get her elected on the on, an, on a minuscule amount of primary vote, which was just amazing. You know, how can you have a... Yeah, how can you have a shooters, vicious farmers party bloke get twelve thousand first preference votes? She gets less than a thousand, and she gets elected. And the SS, the shooters, vicious farmers party bloke doesn't. Um, you know, it's just it's just really quite mind boggling, and um, that's where we've got shooters have got to get a lot more savvy, um, and we need to uh, do some work in the background on what our next step is because we've, we we're starting to see. Yeah, Animal Justice Party, I think, polled 1.51% or maybe slightly higher of the of the lower house votes across the state. 
And the government would look at that and go, oh, well, it's, you know, it's 1.5 or 1.9% or whatever it was. Um, and they would recognise that does not have a, that's not going to influence outcome of a, of a total election. But in some seats, Animal Justice Party polled 3.8% because their catch cry when they handed out their um, how to vote card was, do you love your cat or do you love your dog? Um, and gullible people, um, you know, go, oh, yeah, I love, I love my cat, I'll vote for the Animal Justice Party, without the recognition that the Animal Justice Party doesn't want anyone to own pets. But yet that was the catch cry. You're talking here about one of the nuances of the Victorian system, which may or may not change um, for the next election. Um, there's been a really a circus, I think, for the last sort of decade. So the way that the Victorian system has worked in the upper house. Um, so what what can be done? I mean, basically, we've got a, um, a diverse um, church that we we're part of. Lots and lots and lots of members. Not particularly active. Um, the mums and dads who've got their own problems in life and bills to pay and things like that. We've got shooting organisations who I think, as I said, I, I think actually, if anything, some of them may be compromised in their ability to be able to actually, you know, roll up their sleeves and play dirty at elections, to actually put money in and, and, and to go in really hard, if, if that's what we want. It tends to be the school that I, I tend to, to come from. Um, what then... Is is there a model in in your mind that perhaps could be developed or worked on? You know, in the next sort of you know, five ten years, that would be helpful in that regard. What what's the uh, absolutely Neil? And I think I think in the past we've had little snippets and little insights with some political parties, uh, and I'll use Country Alliance um, as a as a as a really good example of how. There was a, a startup and it sort of got to a point and then it probably needed just a little bit more of a boot along. I think, uh, and I think if you look back in history, you will see the same thing with the Democrats, the same thing with the Greens. You know, a little, you know, it was a little bit of a bumpy road. Um, given our current uh, expertise in communication as humans, um, I think that we could probably accelerate it a little bit. And I think that now, you know, 10 years on from probably the last Tilda Country Alliance, I think now that we've, we've, there's a clearer picture um, and I've had a lot to do at, at the formation level and, and currently still with the um, Outdoor Recreation Advocacy Group, which was started, started up and led by the ETU and which has grown to the Big Four Build Unions, which has grabbed another um, handful of unions in as well. All of the shooting organisation were in as foundation members as well, so um, Fielding Game Australia, WSAA Vic, um, ADA uh, were all in at that base level. We've now seen the inclusion of a lot of working gun dog groups, Victorian rock climbers, the prospectors and miners, the bush users groups, um, and the other big one, which is VR Fish. So now we see... And we haven't gone shopping too much or we haven't gone you know, expanding the group too much as yet while we settle it down and we get all the charters in place and we work out how we want to utilise that, that group. Um, and that, So now we see a nucleus of uh, outdoor recreation in a really broad, from a really broad base. So it's not just shooting organisations, it's, 
know, rock climbers. It's a, a bigger, diverse range of people. And the outdoor recreation space, when you sit back and examine it, is absolutely massive. And some of the doors that can open from this particular, from the nucleus of what is the Outdoor Recreation Advocacy Group is amazing. So we start thinking about things like the um, car industry because you've got every single major player in the car industry makes some sort of SUV or a four-wheel drive. So that opens the door to go and invite those guys to come and get involved. We see the boating industry, which obviously most most people who go fishing or a high proportion of people that go fishing have a fishing boat. So that opens the door to that boating industry. Then we start looking at all these little avenues first, probably industry by industry first, and then you start going outside of that and you go to the accommodation industry and then you go to regional tourism and things like that. So really when you start looking at just what is maybe a small piece of the puzzle yeah, in, say, hunting or boating or whatever, it is, all of those things grow in a pyramid and all of a sudden you start to get uh, a nucleus that is well-informed, well-funded, uh, and then can then grow and push a political position with politicians. Uh, and as we said before, numbers are by far and away the greatest influence. So ORAG at the moment is around about 430,000 direct contact members. So that's 85,000 union members. That's uh, 65, 70,000 uh, hunting group or shooting group members, and that cat's got opportunity to expand because if you add all licensed firearm owners in there, that would add another 100,000 on top. Um, then all of a sudden you add all the VR fish guys, so everyone with a recreational fishing licence, all of a sudden you have 430,000 plus two contacts in your family, it's 1.2 million people. Uh, 1.2 million people, as you would know, Neil, is about 25% of the Victorian voting electorate. Yeah, um, I mean, whether this can be done, it's going to come to the quality of the leadership. Um, that is going to be the key. <laughs> and how, political, how politically um, conversant they are. Well, it won't matter because if you've got a, if you've got you know, 1.2 million people in direct contact in your contact list and you've got a active um, you know, PR communications and things like that, um, uh, I, I think that gives you some tremendous power looking at looking at an you know, upcoming election. Whether you use that for advocacy or whether you use that for lobbying uh, or whether you use that in the formation of a political party of some description, um, I, I still think there's a very powerful. That's a very powerful block of uh, block of people. Okay, so Danny Ryan, look, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your your insight into into our political scene. Thank you very much, Neil. I look forward to conversing with you again in the future. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast and that you're on our email list. And don't forget to check the episode notes because that's where you find out how you can support the show and become a member to back what we do. Plus let us know if you want something promoted on the podcast. Maybe you've got a shoot coming up or you're on promote your association or club for more members. Just let us know. We'll see you in our next episode of Politics Reloaded.